0: SunCast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. SunCast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. This is SunCast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and actions shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Hey, friend. Really glad to have you join us today. You are in for a real treat, as this is the first of a series of conversations that I'm having with solar company founders in Latin America. I'm calling it the LATAM Founder Series. You might think of it as a season two of SunCast. But first, a special thanks. It wouldn't be possible without the collaboration of our friends at Enphase Energy, who are helping make this LATAM Founder Series possible. If you didn't have a chance to hear the setup episode that we released on Tuesday. Go back and have a listen as I speak with Luis Morales at Enphase about why we wanted to collaborate on this specific series of conversations. Today on Suncast, you'll meet Jose Sembrano of Galt Energy. Galt is possibly the fastest growing solar company in Mexico, maybe in Latin America, and its leader Jose and I discuss just how he's gone about building this company. It's impressive to see how he's built such a successful system to scale the company in such little time, and he shares the tools and mindset that have helped him get to this stage in their growth. He even shares the secret hiring tip that took their system failures down to zero. If you've ever wondered how to start and scale a distributed solar company in Latin America, or how to sell to one, then keep your pen handy. You might want to take some notes. Thanks again for taking some time to be here. Enjoy this week's episode of Suncast with Jose Sambrano.
1: Excellent. Well, today on SunCast, have the great pleasure of hosting Mr. Jose Hernan Sambrano from Galt Energy. And Jose and I have had uh, a couple of chances to meet in person. Most recently, back in January at the Greentech Media Solar Summit, where we were both panelists at uh, at Greentech Media's first foray into Mexico. And I know that uh, Galt has been on a tear recently, so in conjunction with our good friends at Enphase, we wanted to have an opportunity to have Jose on the show. Jose, welcome.
2: Thank you very much for having me, Nico. It's always a a pleasure, and and I always love talking about my company, and so... It's great to have someone who's actually interested in this and, and not just wanting me to change the subject to something else.
1: No worries. No worries. You've got more than, more than enough interest on this side of the fence, that's for sure. We are uh, in- incredibly curious, and I love to dig into the details of the history and the future of our guests. So with that, actually, we'll go back to what might be the beginning for those who may not know much about Jose, uh, you have uh, you have a, a long history in, obviously born in Mexico, long history in the Monterey region, both yourself and your family, and studied in the U.S. Uh, and prior to forming, Galt did some consulting as well. So I'd love it if you would just take a moment and set the stage for us, how Galt came into being. Um, okay, sure.
2: So... So as you said, I was in consulting, and well, that uh, that that job, although a very uh, demanding job, it it teaches you a lot about different industries, different businesses, and and you're exposed to all of these uh, bright minds in different uh, fields. And so there's always, I mean, I I've, I've always found that that consultants really want to start their company because they see the the potential that all of these companies have and, and and there's just so much to be done in them and and so you just want to take that into your own hands and actually do something um and do something for yourself and so um as you said I was an operations consulting I, I did uh wor- work for a pharmaceutical company for a a steel mill a uh, very wide uh varied variety of of topics and so um while I was there Uh, I wasn't entirely satisfied with what I was doing because it was mainly only for operations. And so it was a very, you you didn't get to see the whole like management aspect of the company. And so it was a a lower level of of the companies that we were looking at. And I had friends who are now my my business partners who were at other consulting uh, agencies at McKinsey, at Bain. And, and so they had different views on, on, on business. And so we started talking about mainly starting uh, a startup. We, we wanted to do something for ourselves, mm-hmm. not necessarily quit our jobs, just try to find something that we could do for ourselves and, and put all of, the, of what we were learning into this new idea. And uh, we came into solar as complete outsiders to the industry. We had no idea uh, what, what solar was about. Uh, but we kind of saw the the potential and we started uh, digging into it and 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 the farther uh, we went in our investigations the the more potential we saw for it especially in a country as Mexico with incredible irradiation uh, cheap labor and and very high electricity costs and so we figured that if it was working in Germany and Canada and the us uh, there definitely had to be a way to make it work in mexico and so after several months of, of um, us just bouncing around financial models and, and projections of what could be a solar company in Mexico. And, and our consulting background definitely ha- helped us in doing this. Um, I took the the first jump and, and I quit my my job when we thought that we were ready to actually start a solar company in Mexico that would do things right. We didn't see at the moment that there was much of a competition we saw a lot of people doing solar more of a like a lifestyle business uh, not really investing much into the business itself into the branding and so we we saw an opportunity for us to actually come in uh, not necessarily disrupt the market but do things right and use our perspective as a complete outsider into solar uh, to actually create a product or a company that would serve the many millions of people who have no idea how solar works or or, uh, the benefits that can be uh gotten from it and so um that's pretty much how it started we we had no idea what we were doing in reality uh took a a risk my family wasn't very happy about it i actually didn't tell them for like the first month that i had quit my comfy job at, at the consulting firm and uh no way
1: that's amazing <laughs> yeah my parents were there, was there was there was there a familial reason for that I mean was there a lot of high high expectations for your career I
2: mean I I uh I was doing pretty well uh, at the at the firm um I, I had a, a pretty set uh path and and uh, a career that I could follow and and learn mm-hmm. from all of these people and industries and stuff and so my my parents were really happy about me being there um, and, and when I actually talked to them about the, the, the first time about starting my own company, they were like, no, you're not ready. You're too young. You have no idea what it takes to run a company.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and so, and so I just since, stopped since, the conversation many, right there. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and many listeners may not know, how old were you at the time when you were making these decisions? 24. 24. Yeah. So c- your whole career ahead of you on the right path. Yeah, I was, uh, I was doing in, pretty well. And so. Uh, U.S. U.S. educated at a very good business school.
2: Yeah, uh, it was actually engineering school. I did a civil uh, engineering. E- yeah, civil engineering at at uh, University of Texas, which is uh-huh. a pretty good engineering school. So, um, yeah. I was in a on a pretty good path. And but I wanted to do, I wanted to do something for myself. And with the, actually with the backing of my my friends, my co-founders, um, it, it made it so much easier for me to to take the leap. Because at the moment when I said, like, okay, guys, so this is it. We can either, like, I'm about to switch project at, at the at the firm. And so either it's now or I'm going to have to right
1: wait. Uh, Another two
2: years. Yeah, until, I mean, each pro- project was probably between six to eight months. So it was either now okay. or eight months later. And so I said, uh, should we do it? Uh, would you guys be willing to invest in this project? And they're like, sure, go, like, don't even think about it. And so... Incredible.
1: So you were the Lone Ranger, stepping out on your own, and backed by who are now your found, your co-founders, backed by your friends. Yeah,
2: and and so wow. with their uh, backing, I I took the leap of faith. I quit my job and uh, rented out a, a room in inside a house that was being rented by a couple of startups, and and that's how we started. No way. That takes a lot of courage on all parts, huh? Yeah. It was fun. It it definitely was fun. I would definitely do it all over again. Uh, but but uh, when people ask me like, because they see like someone just throwing everything away, but we it wasn't really like that. We did a lot of preparation or a lot of research. Mm. By the time we like, I actually quit my job. We already had a system installed, and so it was already kind of. Uh, I I had somewhere to look. Uh, to look to, and and it wasn't just like jumping ship and and trying to yeah. Find my way up. It it was already a a pretty set strategy that we were going to follow by the time.
1: Yeah, so, solid advice. I I don't know if you listen to or read much of a, a guy named James Altucher here in the U.S., but uh, his advice uh, is he wrote a couple of books called Choose Yourself, and uh, his number one advice is don't quit your job. Mm-hmm. Just you have to have something that you have to have an off ramp. So uh, I would expect as in. As an engineer who no doubt has good mentors around him, uh, you you guys were preparing and preparing and paving the way to have that off ramp. I wonder, from a from an operations perspective, you're an operations consultant, and you're looking at this from as from the mindset of a civil engineer. What specific processes or systems did you bring to building Galt? That Galt that came out of that consultant experience.
2: Well, I think the the main I don't think I brought like any uh, specific strategies or like inventory reduction strategies or stuff like that. But I think the main uh, thing that has impacted GALT that I brought from from consulting was was just uh, continual improvement and and just never mm. uh, settling or assuming that what you're doing is the right thing, and always finding a way to improve on what you're doing. And so that's something that we've tried to. Uh, keep in the gout culture and and that we've been doing and and we constantly analyze our processes analyze our our um, our assumptions of of what the ideal uh, sale process or the installation process should be and just try to look at it from an outside perspective and see our it just because it's working is it the best thing that we could be doing right now and so recently we just changed uh, another part of our installation process that we thought was already perfected and and it's never going to be perfect. And and so it's, it's just the idea of always finding room to improve. I think that's something that has really impacted GALT that we brought from, from consulting um, all of the partners.
1: Hmm. So you're, one of the pioneers it's uh it'd be hard to say that you're uh one of the first because you guys did uh come in as as you mentioned an outsider to the industry that already existed but nonetheless you have been quoted by some industry analysts as growing one of the fastest growing if not the fastest growing PV uh solar company in Mexico what do you think if you, as you reflect over the last couple of years is the single hardest thing about launching a PV business anywhere, but in particular, Mexico.
2: Well, I think the hardest part for us was was getting over the uh, the engineering, the operations. Uh, since we were complete outsiders, I mean, we really had to find people who were good at doing this and and with no knowledge uh, ourselves of, of what a proper installation should look like or a, a proper installation process should be. It was wow. really easy for us to just assume that whoever had uh Experience under your resume or curriculum would be enough for us to to hit what we were trying to achieve and and it really wasn't that way. And so it really took us uh, like a year and a half for us to actually understand uh, things that we were doing wrong or things that we could do better and to actually recognize potential in people with real experience and with real capacity and and mm-hmm. get those people on board no matter what and and make sure that I mean, it sounds pretty obvious, but make sure that the system works. I mean, that the the product that we're selling works, works perfectly, looks well, uh, and and the client is happy. And so I think being uh, complete outsiders to the industry, we had some struggles in the operations side in terms of, of installations and, and engineering. But um, we also focused a lot. I mean, I, I always see a business... That's uh, set up by three main like uh, legs, if you could call that, or, or or it's propped up by three different legs. And so it's operations, finance, and commercial, which uh, is sales and, and marketing. And so we were very strong on the commercial and on the finance. We had uh, some issues starting on with operations, but we figured uh, uh, figured out what we were doing wrong. We got the right people involved, and we quickly overcame that. And I think that's what also made a huge difference for us. A lot of the people who are already in solar, as you said, we weren't the first. We've never claimed to be the first. But we were the first who kind of uh, switch solar from an engineering or a, a, a very technical product to something that the average home buyer could actually uh, use or, or understand. And so we did a lot of education, a lot of marketing. Uh, we started with our finance options. And so that uh, really helped us grow and differentiate ourselves. And and I would say that we were the first company to actually invest that much in marketing and and branding and uh, figuring out what the client wants and giving it to them instead of just trying to sell them what
1: we want to sell. Excellent. Um, I appreciate that answer. I love the answer of how uh, the Ops guys uh, are strongest on finance and commercial. Uh, I feel far too often in the solar industry that people lean on commercial and uh, and or try to figure out the sort of the solar city or the vivid finance model. Uh, and I tell the story often that uh, when I met Peter Rive, uh, I realized very early on what the key to their success was when in 2009 at uh, one of the solar functions, I walk up and I said, hey, Peter, you know, how, how did you guys expand so quickly across California? Uh, I'm running this small installer company. You guys have vastly eclipsed us with only 10 million investment. And he said, since day one, we built the right systems, and we knew how to scale, and it's all built on software. Uh, and uh, so I appreciate that uh, a company has a focus, as you mentioned, on continuous improvement, especially on the operations side. I have a HR style question and then a technical question. Sure. You keep mentioning how you focused on getting the right people. Could you qualify a bit? A, what, what does it look like to be the right people? And B, are you only looking for folks inside of Mexico or do you have a different recruiting strategy?
2: So um, recruiting in solar is Mexico in Mexico is very tricky. And, and the main reason is because it's such a new industry that it's very rare that you will find someone with experience in solar in Mexico uh, and that actually fits the the right culture. And so when I mean the right fit for a company, what we're looking for is, uh, we, we call them mini CEOs. And so we like to think that everyone is an owner of their own uh, area or their own department and that they're not going to be Looking for someone to tell them what to do things, how to do things in order for them to do it. And so um, we by by looking for uh, for people who are actually uh, willing to do to take risks for the company and and to have what we're trying to accomplish in mind, I think we avoid a lot of management, a lot of micromanagement from our side. And so uh, the partners can. Work, uh, Santiago, our CFO, and, and myself, we can work on actually uh, more strategic things while our team is actually handling the operations and the day-to-day, and we trust them to do so correctly. And so we're looking for people who, who have that entrepreneurial spirit, and maybe uh, it's, it's hard actually to convince someone to leave their startup, which we've actually done before, in order to uh-huh. join us. Uh, but it's I think that that continuous search for improvement is actually also very inherent in, in our employees. And so as long as our, our leaders in, in management and in I'm sorry, our leaders in marketing, in operations and engineering, they're always looking for, for improvement and for growth, then we can focus on on more strategic and, and higher level kinds of things which will allow us to maintain a, a very steady and high growth.
1: That's excellent. And you uh you mentioned the hardest part of this whole thing was figuring out the engineering and ops piece. How did you overcome getting the right engineers in place? I mean, as you mentioned, it's a, it's a it's not a market ripe with engineers with years of experience. Yeah, and, and more and along that line also how how did you take it as you say from technical to easy for the customer because that kind of goes hand in hand with having the right engineering people
2: yeah so uh in the beginning we we started with uh simply ele- electrical engineers who had experience with solar and so that was pretty much enough for us and and it was all we, all we could afford really so it's it's really easy it's really easy to say yeah find the right people but if you don't have the budget then it's kind of harder so right. i mean i think it was just uh Something that that every company goes through, in, in terms of evolving and getting uh, better prepared personnel, and so we went from simply people with some electrical engineering background, uh, and we went through several engineers uh, that didn't make the cut. And I think the the main reason why they were they uh, we we couldn't work with them was not the fact that they didn't have the the ability or the knowledge for electrical engineering. It was mainly uh, that they didn't fit as, as, as uh, I mentioned before with the culture mm. of, of them being responsible for their area of the company and for their job without having someone to be looking over their shoulder and trying to figure out if they're doing things right because we we know not, nothing about electrical engineering. And so it's very hard to manage mm. someone who's being who's expecting to be managed. And so and that, that was an issue that we were having that um, these guys, they were good. They, they knew how to do their jobs, but they were expecting to be managed. And and they had grown up or they had worked before in industries that that managed them very carefully. And, and so that's kind of just the culture that they had. And so it wasn't something that that could work with a company that wanted to grow as fast as we wanted to grow or that wanted to uh, become a leader in the industry. And so after going through several uh, heads of engineering, we actually found someone who met uh, our criteria, and and who I still say has been our best hire to date. And he's our head of engineering right now. He's a genius. Uh, he he has a master's in renewable energy, and and he's just great. Always looking to improve the product. We don't have to tell him what to do, and 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 that's that's just what we were looking for. And so, when we found him, it completely changed our. Uh, our whole operations and, and our whole uh, functioning, we, we saw uh-huh. our failures drop to basically zero and, and everything just got much better when you have someone who's actually doing their job because they like it, because they want to do more for the company and not just because they want to just fill a seat for nine hours or eight hours a day. And so um, it took some time, but eventually we got it right. And and our competitors, I mean, uh, I I know a lot of them. It's as in the as it is in the U.S. It's a small industry, and so mm-hmm. you yep. you know m- much of our, your competition. And they always said like, you guys really sucked in in operations and engineering at the beginning. And I was like, yeah, I know. I mean, I wasn't expecting to be perfect at the beginning, but um, I mean, we fixed whatever we did wrong. Our clients are happy, and
1: and I guess that's mm. that's what matters. That's. That's key. Uh, you you mentioned probably this is going to lead into uh, the next question, so I'll just ask that. I'm really interested to know how you saw failures drop to zero with, with uh, a single, you know, credited to a single hire. You mentioned on one of your uh, public profiles that Galt manages its own fund, leasing and financing operations, and invests in technology to reduce financing risk. What does that mean for you?
2: So, I mean... Uh, going back to, to what I already said, I mean, if, if you're trying to do a, uh, trying to start a company around a product, you, you have to make sure that product works perfectly. I mean, you can't, if, if you want to be growing a triple digit growth for years to come, there's just no way you can tolerate any, any kind of failure in, uh, in your product. And so, um, I, I think that's, that's something that, that has been, uh, growing in popularity in different industries such as the the car industry where uh, they're looking at at six sigma uh, standards of failure and and it's something that we realized uh while while we were still small and we were figuring things out and and we made some mistakes and and we didn't use the proper equipment or we chose to use cheaper equipment in order to have uh, larger margins I mean, it, it was the moment to make those mistakes, in my opinion, because it was still mm, solvable. Course, yeah. I mean, we, we were doing, I don't know, maybe a couple of projects per week or or even like less than 10 projects per month. And so it was really simple. If, if anything failed, to just go out and, and figure out what it was or maybe that Chinese string inverter uh, went out for some reason and you just had to restart it and it was easy to do so. But mm. as we started growing, we realized that the... Like, that those types of errors were not going to be possible if you wanted to achieve uh, a huge growth and and uh, many more clients uh, per week or even per day. And so what we started doing was shifting away from uh, higher margins to higher quality. And so uh, with that, we started introducing higher quality modules, higher quality inverters, and and it's come to the point right now where 100% of our installations are done with with microinverters because they are the most reliable inverter that we've ever tried. And, and they allow any error to change from being an emergency that you have to fix immediately because, because the whole system is out to something that is important to actually take care of. But uh, you can get to it whenever you have time. So it, it, if, your, if your string inverter goes out you have to be there the next day or the client is going to be really, really mad and, and you're going to stop uh, getting recommendations from that client. And so uh, microinverters, if, if you're looking at uh, kind of offering a very uh, strong value and, and having a, having a very good uh, net promoter score, it's, I mean, you, you have to have the, the product work perfectly and and the closest to perfect that we've, had in our experience, and we've tried around ten different types of inverters. Is is M phase microinverters, mm-hmm. um, and I, I do mention M phase only because we have tried other microinverters, and it's been a mess as well. So, wow. uh, yeah. so it, it doesn't mean that microinverters are the solution. It's for us, it just has been that specifically uh, M phase has given us has given us the reliability that we're looking for
1: in order to just don't worry. About the product, and just worry about growth, yeah, you've mentioned earlier that your failures dropped to zero i'm I'm wondering uh, one of my questions was going to be where do you see the highest failure rate in particular with with residential and small commercial deals, and uh, obviously because that's a pain point, that's what you want to fix when you're installing you know tens a week um, do, do are there a number of different failure points that your engineering team had to address
2: um, yes, I mean The issue is that the Mexican grid is very different from the U.S. grid. And so we have uh, very variable voltages, uh, either very high or very low or or very variable between the day. And so that really messes up with with inverters and and their predicted uh, Mm -hmm. age. And so we had a lot of issues with that, with with different inverters at the beginning. And. So we had to go back and and expand voltage parameters or switch voltage parameters to something that would work. And so it was, kind, it was kind of like every installation is is being done in a different country because we don't have a very standard, or reliable grid. And mm. and so that was one of the the bigger issues that we were having. Yeah. Um, aside from that, there there definitely were inverter failures. Uh, and and I I mean that's that's really on me because I was looking for cheaper options and just having larger right. margins. And so we, we started using uh, cheaper and cheaper products. And, and as the industry started growing in Mexico, we had all of these new options that we didn't have before. And suddenly you were getting string inverters from, I mean, when we started, we were buying string inverters at 50 cents, 60 cents per watt. And now you have options like a 12 cents per watt for a residential mm-hmm. string inverter, which is ridiculous. And right. and so, I mean, it's it's... Tempting to just increase your margins and it's uh, what we did for a couple of months and we quickly realized that uh, whatever we made immediately out of larger margins, <laughs> we were going to lose in a couple of years that having to go time, back yeah. to the client's house and fixing stuff as well as losing on on, on their satisfaction. And, and mm. it's something that we've, we're always measuring and, and trying to keep our NPS high
1: yeah as a consultant, and it sounds like you've got some marketing experience how do have you put a value on not only downtime, obviously because you own these systems but on net promoter score?
2: So we don't have a value on it precisely in saying uh, this is how much it gives us, but we do measure net promoter score i I know that there's very few people in the Mexican industry who who actually measure it. As well you'd as the first,
1: you'd be the first to mention it to me. Oh,
2: <laughs> okay. So, so yeah, we've been measuring it since since we started, and we really saw how it's improved uh, by uh, improving our operations and and our engineering uh, team, as well as improving the quality of our product. And so, right now, wow. uh, I'm proud to say we have like a 92% NPS, which is unheard of in solar, and that means that only eight percent of our clients would not recommend this and 92% would. And, and that's because we, we really strive to make every, every single purchasing experience unique and, and have the clients feel like they're the only client that we have. Um, I still take calls from, from a lot of clients whenever it's needed. Um, even though, uh, we have so much that it's probably not the smartest idea, but, um, we try to make the, the the client feel like they're a partner and not not only a, a customer. And so we really worry about how they're doing in terms of their savings, in terms of uh their system production. And and that gives us uh pretty high NPS, which gives us a lot of recommendations. And 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 all of those referrals uh translate to a much lower customer acquisition costs and and we've been able to reduce our customer acquisition costs by by half. Just by uh, relying on, on more referrals. And so, right now, I think around 60 or 70% of our sales are, are only referrals. And so, that, that, that's remarkable. Yeah, that's pretty high. And, and it's higher than w- what we thought we Absolutely. were going to be able to get, get it to, but it's, uh, it's working great for us. And
1: you, it makes. Do you think that? Yeah. Do, do you. I'm wondering if that's a credit as well to the Latino culture? You know, if, if I see it on your front lawn and, and, I, and I trust you as a neighbor and we're in the same neighborhood, uh, I'm more likely to buy the same product. Where, whereas perhaps in other cultures, it's just a sign that, well, this stuff works, so I can go find the lowest price.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've, we've actually, we do have that measured. And, and for example, for uh, clients that come in as referrals, we close them in an average of half the time. So we close them in two to three weeks instead of uh, four to six weeks. We close them whenever they are uh, cash payments, we close them at a at a higher price, higher price point than uh. Uh, just an average customer because they're not comparing with so many options. And so instead of getting into this bidding war with the competition, they know that their cousin or their friend already had a good experience and they're willing to pay more for that good experience instead of risking uh, trying to find something for themselves for a cheaper price. And and obviously our customer acquisition cost is much, lo- is much lower because even though we do pay out commission uh, to clients that refer us, that commission is nowhere as expensive as doing just traditional marketing.
1: Sure. Yeah. That is so intriguing. So you obviously guys, you said started just like most folks, I, I presume doing turnkey EPC work. As you grow, you build on different aspects of your business. Financing is one of them. Uh, how, how do you go from EPC to financing and owning assets? Can you help me understand that mindset and that switch? Sure. So
2: we've actually separated those as two different companies, and I think that's that's where uh, a lot of the confusion could come from. Um, I run and operate the the EPC business side and every single one of our sales is a cash sale from my perspective. Uh, The Mm. only difference is either we're selling it to the client or we're selling it to uh, our fund, which is actually a subsidiary of our company. And so our fund is purchasing those assets and the fund and and its employees are in charge of uh, maintaining those assets and um, ensuring that everything is paid in time and and correctly and, and all of the things involved with with being a third-party lender. Does that third-party lender also finance for other people, not Gulp? No, no, we haven't had the need. It's actually, yeah. uh, we've had many more projects than than we thought we were going to have. And so all of our capital that we've raised has been uh, exclusively for for our own products. If, if for some reason we weren't growing as fast as we are, then maybe we would have to look over and, and try to finance um, competitors because we weren't deploying fast enough, but that ha- hasn't been the issue
1: up to now, luckily. Can you, uh, so you guys are financing your deals. Uh, I'm wondering at, when you started looking at owning them yourself and, and being beholden to your own investors, not just, uh, providing a, a stellar product to the end customer, did that change a bit the conversation around technology selection as well? Um, definitely.
2: I mean, it. it's when when you're selling something up uh, for cash, we actually I remember like two two years or two years and a half ago, we actually like gave the client a, a, a wide variety of options. And so they could go with string inverters at a lower price or optimizers yeah. at a medium price or uh, um, micro inverters are at a higher price and they, they could choose either. Uh, these tier one modules or tier two modules and and we gave them like a whole range of options because we thought that that was the best way of, of uh, meeting our clients needs and and giving them what exactly what we want and so someone who would look, be looking for a cheaper product would just uh, purchase a a cheaper option and someone looking for a higher quality would purchase a higher quality but in the end what what eventually started happening is is that we're not going to treat any customers differently and so uh we're not going to treat the guy that has a string inverter differently than the guy that has micro inverters because i mean that would just be really bad for for us as a company and and for our clients and so we we gave them the same uh, standard warranties that we give to all of them but we were taking a much bigger risk by selling them something that was not as as high quality as it could be. And so Mm -hmm. uh, when we started financing, we realized that now we were involving many more options of, of financing options uh, aside from the product options that we just decided to say, let's just stop it with the different options. It's not a, uh, it's not a restaurant. You can't come here and just choose uh, Uh how how are you going to have your burger and just the menu. Yeah. Yeah. Just standardize our option, focus on, on quality, focus on, on, Uh, a pretty good product and eventually we're going to be able to to have enough volume with this quality product to actually be very competitive with those selling uh, cheaper products but at a a lower volume and so they're going to need either larger margins or they're going to have higher costs and so that's when when the financing aspect came in we decided to just uh, stop offering so many options and just focus on our options being financing options so Right now, we have a very standardized product. You either get tier one modules with M-Phase microinverters or you get tier one uh, modules with M-Phase microinverters. There's no, mm-hmm. really uh, nothing you can do there. You can only uh, say how many you want. And and then the 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 real options for the clients are how they're going to pay for it. And that's where, where we can become very flexible and, and very uh,
1: attractive in, in terms of um, our offering for our clients. Do you guys do any A/B testing just to tweak how you sell and what works best?
2: Yeah, we do, and, and we've actually done it on our website as well. Um, and and we've found that the less amount of options you offer to a client, the quicker they reach a decision. And and mm-hmm. if those options are are beneficial for the client as well as for us, as they are with a high quality product, then I mean it's it's just much easier to operate your company and to
1: grow. Hmm. So, I, I'll obviously, we both had experience with both raising a fund and deploying capital. Uh, my, one, part of my experience is uh, on, uh, with regards to the engineering side, investors uh, being both very hands-off and also, in another scenario, very hands-on. Uh, one of the ways that I've seen companies, in your scenario, sort of I'll call it a swage investors, or um, make it very easy for the investors to continue wanting to put money in the fund. Was by also simplifying the decision on their side. Would you? Do you have any thoughts on that, or or comments around that?
2: On our offer to investors, like yeah, um, yeah, I mean- yeah, I guess uh, when when we're talking to investors, it's it depends on what kind of investor they are, and so if we're talking to institutional investors. We're gonna uh, invest much more money we we are more accommodating to what they're looking for, and we do kind of offer uh or or we look for for different ways to to reduce the risk that they're perceiving and and mm-hmm. um, add more covenants to what they're looking for and stuff like that and when there are just private investors that are not as um, are are not gonna be making as much as an investment, it's usually a very standard offer. Where you can get that a certain amount of return uh, over X amounts of years and, and that's pretty much it.
1: Excellent. Is it getting into the secret sauce to ask about the the length in terms of terms of your financing? I
2: think it could be, yeah. Yeah, it could
1: be. Yeah. Uh, I mean okay. it's
2: I I guess it's pretty standard really. I think the only uh, the only difference um something that that we actually noticed from from the beginning is that in the us so you have these these very low relatively low if you compare them to developing markets returns where you're getting uh, uh 11 to 13 percent ir on on your on your portfolio and so in order for you to actually make money out of that you need like a i don't know seven point spread uh and so right. you need like a cost of capital around four or five maybe and so in order for you to get that cost of capital, you, you have to go to institutional backers uh, who will have very strict guidelines and, and who will uh, tell you exactly what they're looking for. And you're going to have to give them what they want because uh, you're getting money at a 4 or 5% return. And and that's what you need for, right. for you to make uh, money and to make it in the industry. And so... When we started in Mexico, we realized that we actually didn't have that need because our returns which were much higher. And so if we had higher returns, then then our investors could be uh, all types of investors. They didn't have to be institutional uh, banks or, or funds that would lend us at, at a very uh, strict term sheet or something. And so um, by realizing that and making the same, it, we were actually having – we have a, a higher spread than, than what uh, the U.S. market has, um, but we have higher returns. And and so we've actually preferred to maintain our flexibility in, in our our uh, capital raise uh, and paying a higher rate than what we could get with lower flexibility. And that higher mm-hmm. flexibility also translates to the products that we offer, uh, where clients can get out of their... Uh, rentals in four years instead of tying them down to twenty years, and so okay. I guess it's it's. I mean, it's obviously going to be uh, very similar the terms that you uh, raise your uh, your funding and the terms that you give your clients. And so we we wanted I to am. maintain flexibility with our clients, and so in order to do that, we have to pay a higher rate and man- maintain flexibility with our um, our investors. And so that's pretty much
1: the the gist of what we've been working on. Excellent I often refer to what's called the solar city effect. It comes about in every state in the u s and I presume it also should be felt a little bit in Mexico, given that we're nearly a year into solar cities on trade to the market. From your perspective, is it benefiting you, the market uh, marketing efforts? Do you see leads coming to you? Is it a rising tide? What's your opinion on the solar city effect for solar in mexico
2: um. So, not getting into too many details, I think Solar City's strategy into Mexico has not panned out as well as they thought it was going to be. Um, mm-hmm. I've actually been interviewing for the past months uh, a couple of people that have been um, let go from Solar City, uh, that they were let go in the last couple of months and uh-huh. And I know that they're shifting their focus from commercial industrial into residential and so um what i can say i guess is that and that's something that they made public is that they, their strategy in mexico was focused on commercial industrial uh projects yeah. and they mm-hmm. bought a company that that was only doing commercial and industrial projects and that had a very uh healthy pipeline but the thing is that they i i don't think they bought at the best time and and I think they mm. know that now. And so I mean no one know, knew it at the moment but uh commercial and industrial rates started falling tremendously. They they fell like 50% over a year and a half and so right now you have uh industrial clients paying 4 cents uh per kilowatt hour for for electricity. I'm so immutable. it's completely ah. impossible to compete with that. And so you wipe out a complete sector for solar because It's just impossible to compete with those rates. Uh, In addition to the peso losing a lot of value to the dollar and uh, the fact that they're looking for returns in dollars uh, made it just much harder for them to actually offer something for commercial and industrial. I heard that they wanted to do like 200 megawatts their first year in Mexico, and I don't think they did more than five. And so so they're shifting their focus uh, from what I know, from commercial to residential,
1: uh, they they know a thing or two about residential. Yeah. let's see if it pan, let's see
0: if it pans out in Mexico. They, they
2: do know about that, but the the fact is, the team that they bought and that they've been working with for the past year was mainly commercial and industrial, and so they're mm-hmm, right. practically starting from zero right now in terms of residential. I haven't really seen them at all in terms of marketing, in terms of uh, shows or what whatever. Um, I do know that they don't have a, a financing product yet because they can't use uh, their U.S. funds for Mexican uh, right. clients because it's just a complete different market. And so I, I imagine that they're yeah. raising funds in Mexico for Mexican clients. And so they're which,
1: which, as we all know, is, is really easy.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, if if you give them the the right thing.
1: Yeah, you said uh, I don't know if uh, many of our listeners have had a chance to watch it yet but there's a great video that you just recently did on there was a TEDx talk and in, close to the beginning you actually said you know energy will basically be free uh, how are you guys planning for that eventuality at golf given that your job is to charge people for electricity well I think um, uh, I mean that's that's kind of in the long term
2: uh, but I see the the future electricity markets as a completely different market than what we have right now and so you're gonna instead of having electricity providers you're gonna have solar plants solar uh, providers or, or you're gonna have uh solar plants installers or or um just what we're doing right now except for the fact that we're not going to be charging you for electricity we're just going to sell you the system or you're going to buy it as a uh as you buy your washing machine or whatever on mm-hmm. on on any
1: on payment plans yeah yeah
2: on on any store and you're just going to have it installed in your home and and that's going to give give you enough uh for you to generate and and store as well i mean storage is going to be a big part of this as well in the future but i just see it as a complete different business where it's probably going to move into stores or move into construction and it's going to be offered with the home i mean i don't Mm -hmm. i don't see it making sense any other way
1: Yeah, so it's a standard offering the way air conditioners are now in in many parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Mm. Well, as we we lean in often to guests on the show, I like to get inside uh, how you organize your life, how you organize your work day. And I think that uh, as a friend of mine, Jeff Brown, often says readers are leaders and leaders are readers. So a common question on the show is what's on your nightstand? And really what I'm looking for here is the books, blogs, tools that you've discovered that uh, impact the way you understand uh, the world and, and impact how you operate.
2: Sure. So there's nothing on my nightstand because I, mm-hmm. I, I don't actually read a book. I hear them. I listen to them. Mm. Audio. And so, yeah, I, I do a lot of audio uh, books usually where, where I'm in, when I'm in traffic or when I'm at the gym. And so that's your perfect
1: candidate for SunCast. <laughs> <laughs> why?
2: Oh yeah, for for listening to your podcast, listening to the show. Yeah, I'll have to get into that. Um, yeah. But yeah, definitely, it's something that I've I've really appreciated, and I, I feel like I mean, it's definitely something every single business owner should do. Just try and read uh, the experiences of other people that have been in, in similar spots where you are, and just take from their experience instead of trying to invent everything by yourself and and so i've i've definitely uh read or listened to a lot of books that have have helped me over the years um i don't know if you want me to get
1: into them ah oh, i definitely do yeah um, any specific any specifics that you would recommend
2: sure so the 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 main one that i always recommend when i am asked this question is uh 0 to 1 by peter uh-huh, theo yeah. that's that's just a great book and it tells you everything you need to know about how you're going to be successful in a business. And so when I read that book, it's it really book. changed uh, our perspective of of what we were doing and how we were doing it. I mean, we were just growing, but we didn't really have a strategy in terms of how we're going to be, uh, how we're going to raise barriers of entry and how we're going to make it harder for other companies to compete with yeah. with us. And so... Precisely. Yeah, so we we that really helped us uh, establish a long-term strategy in order to achieve that. Um, I mean, if if you want me to go into uh, the list, uh, good to great,
1: how Google works, um, hard thing about hard things. Uh, that was the one I was looking for is the hard one, hard thing. Yeah. I was just literally looking at my Kindle. I was like, what's the other one that I always com- compare to zero to one? Yeah. For obvious reasons.
2: Ben Horowitz, it's a great book uh-huh. as well. and, 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 uh, and it really helps you kind of plan, see see yeah. what you're going to be doing over the long term. Uh, I really recommend Scaling Up, uh, which is very... It's Who's mo- that author? It's by Vern Harnish. Uh-huh. And so he's, uh, I think he's a pro- professor or something. And it, it's a very uh, specific book in terms of strategies and, and cash flow strategies and team strategies. And so it's very uh, straight to the point in terms of teaching you uh, how to better run your company. But I think mm-hmm. that makes it even better because, uh, many times when, when reading all of these business books and probably you've felt that as well, it just gets very repetitive and you just hear the same examples over and over again. And so you just want to get straight to a point and say, okay, give me the, the, the summary and, and, uh, let me take what I can out of that. And so,
1: um great Appreciate book that, that I had, one i had not heard of that book actually and i'm on his website now looking uh, mastering the rockefeller habits i guess was his first bestseller
2: yeah Skilling up is is great um yeah. specifically in, in in teaching you how to there's something he mentions that that you can grow broke and so you can be growing but you can mm. just be getting closer and closer to bankruptcy because you don't have the proper cash flow and so it's right. something that uh, we've uh, learned to take more into account and, and to figure out how to improve it. And it's definitely made a, a, a difference, uh, mainly in my level of stress, because that's where most of the stress comes from in, in terms of cash flow, yeah. uh,
1: at least yeah. for a, a growing company. Have, have you read uh, Bolt by Peter Diamandis?
2: No, I haven't. But I... I have it on my list. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. That was a recommendation from uh, uh, a mutual friend of ours, Camilo Patrinani. Okay. And, uh, when I read that book, it was also, it came in a package, uh, from, uh, James Altucher, uh, when I bought one of his products and that book is unbelievable, uh, on the level of, uh, zero to one. Okay. And good to great. I'll definitely in my,
2: put it next yeah. on
1: my, on my queue. It's an excellent book. Um, so apart from reading books that influence how you manage your business, what would you say is the one thing you do consistently that yields the greatest impact in your personal or professional life?
2: Well, something I, I really learned to do early on is trust our team. And so when I started off, it was just myself and I, I was doing basically everything from from lead generation to selling to actually moving the modules around and, and supervising the installation. I didn't actually get... Uh, much of of uh, my hands dirty, but I was there on the roof just making sure everything was going correctly. Um, and so it's really hard when when you know that someone else doesn't know as much as you do. It's really hard to kind of let go and have them learn because you know there's going to be errors and those errors are going to cost you and and uh, and and you want to avoid errors as much as possible. And so um i've seen a lot of people and a lot of friends that have their own companies just trying to micromanage everything and trying to be involved in every single aspect of their company and i just figured out early on that if we wanted to grow uh, fast and i wanted to uh, stay sane and, and not lose my mind i had to just let go and trust our trust my team trust that the people we hired are doing their job correctly and and that uh, if they're not doing their job correctly, they're going to find a way to fix it, and they're going to find a way to to uh, keep the client happy. And as long as that happens, then we're going to be keep uh, we're going to keep on growing, and and we're going to keep on doing what we're doing correctly. And so, uh, I think by by balancing that and by trusting our team, I've I've actually had uh, the the fortune to have a pretty balanced life. Uh, I've I've heard like all of these stories from entrepreneurs that are working, uh, Mm. are sleeping out of their office and stuff like that. And that hasn't been the case. I mean, I'm always working. My wife doesn't really like that. I'm always on my cell phone answering emails or or, uh, texts or or whatnot. But um, I've been able to trust our team to handle most of our day-to-day things. And and that allows me to actually figure out where we're going and and try to figure out where we're going to do so stay on top and and keep growing as we have
1: that's remarkable would uh what do you credit maybe this is selfish in, intrigue but what do you credit to building that trust how do you i mean you're you're in your mid-20s maybe it's easier for your generation i'm a decade older than you but how how do you build that trust how do you get to a place where in your 20s you say you know what uh, I'm it's you have smart people around you i'm gonna, I'm gonna let them do their work um
2: so I actually read that in a, in a book as well. <laughs> I'm not saying that completely influenced mm-hmm. me, but uh I think Andrew Carnegie said it's that he knows nothing about steel. Uh he just uh surrounds himself with the best people who who know uh stuff about steel and so uh it's I think that's very true and and mm-hmm. um and if if you want to run a company, you're not going to be able to be at the floor and, and, handling every single situation. And so I think it's a, it's something about being a realist as well as, um, just knowing that, that not it, it's, I mean, I was just as a, uh, a newbie to solar four years ago as, as the people who are coming into the industry right now, and I learned making mistakes. And so I have to give them that, uh, that process as well as, and, and, yeah. and have them be able to learn from their mistakes, because I mean, it's the best way to learn. And and, and it's how I learned and I'm here. And nothing, uh, no one has died. <laughs> no, nothing serious has it's, happened. And so I think it's just being a realist and saying, I'm not the smartest person necessarily in the room. Um, and and that's great, I guess. Yeah.
1: I, I don't know uh, how much obviously listen to books, but I don't know how many podcasts you listen to. I'm a big fan of the Tim Ferriss podcast. Recently he did this episode where his guests curated questions for Seth Godin and Seth answered them. And one of them, uh, people, it seems are asking Seth a lot of questions about parenting recently. And he quoted, uh, uh, a, a phrase, I guess my wife is familiar with it. Uh, and he said, uh, you know, he, he perceives that children who are more well-adjusted, uh, are children of parents who practice free range parenting. And, uh, what he meant by that was you just got to take the uh, you take the walls and the gates down. And yeah, I mean, sometimes they're going to uh, get too close to a fox. Um, sometimes you're going to fall in a hole. But if you look back on life, you don't think about the lessons you learned in, uh, in a, a math session in second grade. Um, you think more about the lesson you learned when uh, math in some way failed you in the real world and you had to fix it.
2: Yeah, definitely. And so I, I guess um, our my team is is really what I, I attribute the the growth and the success that that Galt has had. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I encourage them to be the same with their teams and and uh, and be confident that they can depend on their teams whenever whenever they need it, and that they they can focus on whatever actually brings value to the company and is not just uh, day to day focus on what's important, not necessarily urgent. And so it's something that's kind of been a philosophy of mine and, and that I've tried to impart on our team. And I think it's been
1: going pretty well so far. Hmm. Well, that sounds like uh, a great place for us to, to pause. Um, I, I feel certain that we'll have more opportunities to have conversations. I do always finish with what I call the bold prediction. So, Jose, what is one thing that you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? I call this your crystal ball. Mm,
2: wow. So I see I see good things and I see bad things. Um, so in, in terms of good things, I think uh, prices are going to fall much faster than what everyone is expecting. Um, Do you mean CFE prices? No, no, no. Uh, just module prices and uh, system yep. costs. Mm-hmm, I think yep. that's going to happen much faster than when, what everyone's Predicting uh because it's it's so you've got Swanson's law, which everyone knows, and and it's uh every time manufacturing capacity doubles, you get a 20% decrease in, in module prices. Um, but a 20% decrease in module prices does not uh, sig- uh it, it does not lead to a 20% increase in demand. It leads to like many times much more demand because you, you have uh Grid party, right. parity and many more markets, and so I think mm-hmm. people are underestimating the 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 growth that solar is going to have in the next couple of years. And, completely agree. Yep. And with that, I mean, there's always there's every time you bring up the fact that oh, solar is going to be very cheap, the fact always comes up of of storage. Like, yeah, but it only works during the day. Sure, uh, but if solar becomes so cheap that even if batteries are, are expensive, uh, it's it's still going to make sense to store uh, solar energy with expensive batteries rather than just burn uh, fossil fuels. And so with that, then you have grid party, parity with batteries and it's just the same virtual cycle again. And so I, I think people are underestimating where, where this industry is headed. And in that sense, um, I also see a lot of uh, negative aspects that will come with that because I mean, the solar industry has been tiny and it's still very small compared to any other um, energy uh, source. Uh, but but as we get bigger and as we become more competitive, we're going to become a much bigger risk. And and as people start realizing the bigger, the the big risk that solar becomes, then there's definitely going to be many more obstacles that are going to come and that's something that i think also a lot of people are not perceiving and when you're doing all of these 20 year leases 20 year ppas your first assumption is that the conditions are going to be are going to stay the same for the next 20 years and that's right. not necessarily going to be true and there's many things that could uh, like turn on us and that that are probably going to turn on us as we become larger and become uh, a bigger player and more of a risk to the status quo and and I see a lot of risk in all of these long-term contracts because many things can change that will lead them to not be attractive anymore for clients. And that will definitely lead to defaults. And so yeah. uh that's I wanna that's why we've tried to keep a, a shorter term
1: outlook on our products. Yeah. Gosh, that's a great uh that's a great place for us to stop for today. I can't wait to have a follow-up discussion with you around long-term contract risk, default risk, et cetera. Uh, that's all. Of those things are, uh, I think, uh, folks are really unclear about mm-hmm. what what's going to happen. Not just Latin America, but around the world. Hey, Jose, man, I uh, I keep hearing great things about you in the market. I'm glad that we finally had a chance to connect. Thank you very much, Nico. Okay. Yeah, you bet, man. Thanks a lot.
0: Take care, Jose. Have a good weekend. You too. Bye. Ciao. This episode is brought to you in collaboration with Enphase Energy as we explore what it takes to launch and grow successful solar companies in Latin America. To learn more or hear other episodes in the series, visit www.mysuncast.com forward slash Enphase. That's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors, and you're now well-armed for battle. Hopefully, you'll take away some great tools for your own success. I'd love it if you'd share what you learned or share the episode over on LinkedIn. Let me know what other tools you need. If you want to sharpen the axe a little bit more, I've shared some of the resources we discussed in today's conversation over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the latest episode link in the title bar. Perhaps the best tool in your arsenal might be subscribing to the mailing list while you're there so that you'll get an email from yours truly when new content is available. Have a suggestion for someone you think should join the conversation? Email me, nico at mysuncast.com or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Hey, that's it. Thanks for being here. Until next time, stay informed, my friend, and stay tuned.